Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exotic. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another fun-packed week of Diffusion, where we beam the latest scientific news and discoveries direct to your brain. I'm your host, Ian Wolfe. Today, we walk on the dark side of the cosmos, ask you about complementary medicine, but first, here's Patrick Ruby with the news. We all know diamonds are a girl's best friend, but it appears these friends could be a lot older than previously thought. The oldest known diamonds have been found in Australia. The diamonds are 4 billion years old, almost as old as the Earth itself. Australian and German geologists made the discovery in the Jack Hills region hundreds of kilometres north of Perth in Western Australia. They were found inside zircon crystals that are 1 billion years older than any diamonds found in terrestrial rock so far. Current theories about the Earth in this period, known as the Hadean period, suggest it would have been too hot for diamonds to form in this period. This discovery suggests the Earth might have cooled down a lot sooner than previously thought. Diamonds are formed from carbon when the pressure on the carbon increases faster than the temperature. This can either be caused by meteor impacts or burying the carbon deep in the crust if it is relatively cool. In this case, a meteor impact seems unlikely. Critics of the new discovery have highlighted there is no evidence that the crystals have been subjected to high pressure and that several other tests need to be performed on the physical structure of the diamonds before this new theory can be accepted. Nanotechnology could be used to disinfect household surfaces. Nanotubes of about 1 nanometer in diameter can pop and kill bacterial cells on contact. The discovery was made by a group of scientists from the US. They exposed the common bacteria, E. coli, to the nanotubes in two different preparations, a floating preparation and a solid clump preparation, and they found that both would kill roughly 80% of the bacteria one hour after contact. Loose bits of DNA and RNA and scanning electron microscope images indicated the bacterial cells would burst after contact with the nanoparticles. The thinner and sharper the nanotubes, the more toxic they were. This technology could potentially be incorporated into the surfaces of many industrial or household objects that humans use during their manufacturing process, in order to act as a disinfectant. There's a catch though. If the nanotubes break off, it's possible they could kill human cells too. The discoverers are also wary of interrupting the role of bacteria in ecosystems. Bacteria can often be good, because they break down dead organic matter and detoxify waste, so the nanotubes would have to be introduced carefully. Stomach surgery saves lives in obesity. Several new studies in the US have shown that stomach stapling can reduce mortality rates in obesity. In some cases, stomach surgery could reduce the risk of death by up to 40% in severely obese patients. The risk of death due to obesity-related diseases such as diabetes was also greatly reduced. 
Stomach stapling has been extremely popular in the last 10 years. The American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery estimates that 177,600 procedures were performed in 2006, up a massive 800% from 1996. So what's the catch? People undergoing surgery have an increased risk of dying by accidents and suicide, possibly due to being more mobile and in some cases disappointed by the procedure. And let's not forget the cost. In some cases, $25,000 for a procedure, which is not covered by U.S. healthcare providers. With this new data on the benefits of surgery, it is hoped by researchers that it might become covered under the healthcare system. Ancient apes throw new light on human evolution. A 10 million year old ape has been discovered in Ethiopia. The ape has teeth similar to a modern gorilla and is thought to have been a direct ancestor of gorillas and chimpanzees. Human fossil records only go back to about 6 to 7 million years, but this discovery suggests the split between the human and ape lines might have happened earlier than we thought. The discovery also indicates that both humans and modern African apes originated from Africa and not Eurasia as some evolutionary scientists have theorised. Critics of the research acknowledge it is an exciting discovery, but are not convinced it is a direct ancestor of the great apes. They claim more evidence needs to be found to be sure. And finally, computers show us that a T-Rex could have caught humans. Scientists from the University of Manchester, UK, built computer models featuring the leg bones, muscles and skeletal structure of five groups of dinosaur predators. Velociraptor, Allosaurus, Dilophosaurus, Comsognathus and Tyrannosaurus. They pit them against the model of a human. Tyrannosaurus and man were the slowest, running at 18 kilometers per hour. Comsognathus, the smallest of the five dinosaurs, was the fastest, clocking 64 kilometers per hour. Critics believe more work still needs to be done to refine this model of evolutionary robotics, such as showing how dinosaurs jumped or accelerated. Thank you, Patrick. Personally, since I couldn't run from a T-Rex, I'd hide and try and think of a way to use carbon nanotubes to defend myself. Earlier, I spoke with Professor Joe Silk, Director of the Beecroft Institute for Particle Astrophysics and Cosmology at the University of Oxford, about dark matter and the cosmos. Astronomy is about things that are bright or shiny. What's interesting about stuff that's neither? So the problem is that when we study the stuff that's bright and shiny, we infer from our studies that there's ten times as much that is invisible. And we call this dark matter. And we know it's there just from studying the properties of the stars that we see and their distribution around the Milky Way, for example. So what we see in the sky doesn't really explain what we see in the sky. There's something else going on. Exactly. And this dominant form of matter in the universe is critical because, you know, it's like you can't expect the tail to wag the dog, right? Mm. So uh, it's the dominant form of matter that controls eventually how the stars are formed, and we have to understand that. Some of the evidence for this dark matter is it what things like the large-scale structure of the universe? Right. So the best evidence, and the first evidence really, came from studying uh, clusters of galaxies. And mm. this was realized in the 1930s by a remarkable astronomer called Fritz Spickian. Swiss-American guy, 
And he noticed that uh, a cluster of galaxies, that's a collection of thousands of galaxies in the sky, all more or less at the same distance, and he was able to use measurements of the motions of these galaxies, which he measured by the Doppler shift using this spectrum of their light, um, were such that the galaxies should fly apart from each other, just like imagine a swarm of bees should basically move away and, and dissolve, and so the cluster shouldn't be there. And he said, well, something is keeping it together. And he inferred that 10 times more mass than could be seen in the stars was present, basically ensuring that the orbits of those galaxies just uh, kept on turning back about themselves and they just did not depart, right? They were just attracted back to where they were by this dark matter that one couldn't see. And his realization that 10, 90% of the cluster was dark has been confirmed by much more detailed and just beautiful modern observations. So could dark matter be black holes? Well, um, let's see. So there are various possibilities for the dark matter. One of them would be black holes. Uh, These are probably not black holes made by collapsing stars, which is one way to make black holes, because if that were true, we would see these explosions, and we, we, we see some, but not nearly enough. Um, but they could be black holes left over from very early in the universe. So that certainly is one, you know, we call those primordial black holes. And so that's, that is certainly one, one possible explanation. Hmm. Uh, another possibility for the dark matter is that it's some sort of very weakly interacting particle, uh, as yet undiscovered. A wimp. Uh, a weakly interacting massive particle, a wimp. That's right. Um, and, and these are um, certainly a candidate for the dark matter. So that's very different to ordinary matter. Yes. So the main difference is in their degree of interaction. So ordinary matter basically clusters and makes stars and planets like the Earth. But that's because um, ordinary matter might have a positive charge, if it's a proton or negative, it's an electron. Those those charges and also the nuclear forces that one finds inside the nuclei are rather strong forces. And they mean that atoms can collect together to make stars, for example, whereas if you have particles that have really weak interactions then they just essentially pass through us and they essentially would reside in the outer parts of the galaxies where the dark matter is. And so our hypothesis is that the dark matter most plausibly consists of these weakly interacting elementary particles that we are still searching for and have not yet discovered. The main way you'd be able to detect these is by the mass would be the main property that they have? Well, exactly. The the mass and also the fact that when they run into each other, they occasionally would self-destruct and give you uh, x-rays, for example, or some some from radiation one might hope to see. And so because the, the vast spaces of our galaxy are full of these dark particles, we have experiments in space now, special telescopes, x-ray telescopes, gamma-ray telescopes, that are looking for faint glows from the middle of nowhere that could be um, due to these dark matter particles running into each other and annihilating with each other. And are there also... There's machos that astronomers are looking for as possible dark matter? Right. So so what the dark matter could also be would be macroscopic objects, such as black holes from the very early universe, left over black holes, or even dark stars. And um, we call these massive compact objects. Macho is the acronym. Uh-huh. So wimps and machos. Macho or wimp, okay. And, and these machos would be more or less the weight, have the mass of a star, or, or something between the mass of the Earth and the mass of a star. And so they're certainly a candidate that we have to try to, to verify its existence. 
and a group of Australian astronomers um, with UK colleagues, American American colleagues, worked out a very clever way to, to look for these using telescope that uh, was on Mount Stromlo for many, many years until it got destroyed in the fire four years ago. And they built a gigantic camera with this telescope. And what they looked for, amazing experiment really, was they studied the large Magellanic cloud and they monitored millions of stars every night in the large Magellanic cloud. And whenever a macho went in front of one of these, which would happen, you know, every now and then had to happen if the machos were there, it would cause the light from one of these background stars to basically be magnified. Gravity does magnify light because it bends light just like a lens does. And so they would look for very occasional, very rare light changes. And they found uh, over six years of observation, some, some 10 or 20 events, that they suggested were possible evidence for these machos. Hmm. So, so it's a possibility, I would say. That's the final conclusion from their experiment. Can't rule this out. Wasn't there an observation a month or two ago where there was an astronomical object that was gravitationally lensed and it was doubled? And they went to look for what the large mass was in between that had bent the light, and they couldn't see anything. And this was possible evidence of dark matter. Right. So dark matter, when it's collected into an object like a galaxy, if you look at background objects, background galaxies, then the light from those passes through the dark matter, which is perfectly transparent, you can't see anything, um, but it does bend the light and magnifies it. And that results in having a double image, for example, of the background galaxy, this, this lensing effect. And this has been seen in various cases. And sometimes you simply find no evidence at all of the object that's doing the lensing. And you, and you assume, you deduce that it is indeed, uh, you know, there is this gravitational lens there. It's got to be something very dark indeed. So that's another way of trying to study or to show that dark matter exists. And there are cases of that now, several examples. Right. Are there any other ways we might be able to detect dark matter? So what one can imagine doing experiments which would um, use the fact that if the dark matter consists of many weak gravitational particles, that these actually pass through us. Millions pass through our bodies every second. Um, they leave almost... They don't interact at all, essentially. But if you have a large enough detector... Um, which might consist of some very sensitive um, detection device which could measure tiny, tiny amounts of heat deposited, um, then every now and then one of these particles would collide with atoms in this detector and leave a trace of heat behind. And so scientists are building giant experiments, large-scale experiments, deep underground to avoid the cosmic rays, which can cause spurious signals, looking for traces of heat from these dark matter particles. So, so far, they've found nothing, but they believe that they simply have to build larger experiments to really test the hypothesis properly. It's early days yet. It's early days yet. And, of course, the, the, the other way um, this problem is being approached is using atom-smashing machines, such as the Large Hadron Collider, which is under construction in Geneva, um, a big European atom-smashing device, which will test our knowledge of elementary particles and basically by smashing protons into antiprotons. And indeed, if one can prove that every now and then when one has a high-energy event, um, this produces some incredibly weakly interacting particle, 
Um, you see basically um, particles on one side of, of an event balanced what, what should be other particles if they were ordinary particles, but you see nothing. That is evidence of a very weak interacting particle, which would itself then be a candidate for the dark matter. That would be the same sort of particles that we conjecture might be the dark matter. So one of the goals of this experiment will be to look for this, for this evidence. That was Professor Joe Silk explaining the wimps and machos that make up the dark things in the universe. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, broadcast at the 2SCR studios gazing into the skies of Sydney. The newest attitude to staying healthy sees more and more people opening themselves up to traditional medical remedies. Here's Patrick Ruby with the latest news on complementary medicine. Recently, the Australian Federal Government pledged $4 million to set up a National Institute for Complementary Medicine at the University of Western Sydney. I investigated what complementary and alternative medicine is, what some of the latest alternative medicines can do, and what Sydneysiders do if they're feeling unwell. Complementary and alternative medicine is a group of diverse medical and healthcare systems, practices and products that are not presently considered part of the conventional medicine. Conventional medicine consists of traditional medical doctors, physical therapists, specialists, psychologists, registered nurses and other recognised healthcare professionals. Complementary medicine is used together with conventional medicine. For example, a person with cardiovascular disease may be prescribed cholesterol-lowering medication, but at the same time would possibly change diet and exercise patterns to control the condition. Alternative medicine is used in place of conventional medicine, such as using herbal remedies to treat colds, headaches, or even more serious conditions such as cancer. There are numerous types of complementary and alternative medicines, including herbal medicine, vitamin and nutritional supplements, aromatherapy, homeopathy, yoga, and traditional Chinese or indigenous Australian medicines. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare has found that Australians spend $1 billion annually on these types of medicine. In Australia, they are regulated under the Therapeutic Goods Act. The Therapeutic Goods Administration is required to use risk-based pre-market assessment procedures to assess the dosage, toxicity and adverse effects of these products. The biggest criticism of complementary and alternative medicines are that they are unscientific, have limited therapeutic effects and are used to swindle the public out of its money and can potentially be harmful to the users, especially herbal medicines with unknown ingredients. However, attitudes within the medical field to complementary and alternative medicines are changing as conceptions of medical treatment and doctor-patient relationships change. Patients are better educated, do more research on their ailments and are more vocal about their ideas of treatment than previously and often make suggestions to the doctor about them trying complementary or alternative medicines. The Medical Journal of Australia advocates the integration of alternative medicines into conventional medical practice if they show therapeutic benefit after rigorous evidence-based scientific testing in clinical trials the same way as pharmaceuticals and accepted healthcare practices currently are. 
it is generally agreed more research has to be done on non-conventional medicines. So what is the science behind some particular alternative medicines? Research from the RMIT University in Victoria, Australia, published in the Australian Family Physician Journal, indicates that probiotics may be a good treatment for so-called traveller's diarrhoea, which is caused by stress, jet lag and unfamiliar food when travelling abroad. Randomised controlled trials have indicated that probiotics such as Saccharomyces boulardii bacteria reduce diarrhoea in 85% of cases, possibly by combating the diarrhoea-causing bacteria. Similarly, ginger was found to have a positive effect in reducing seasickness and vertigo. Some positive results have been found in the US on the use of echinacea for treating the common cold. It is thought naturally occurring compounds in various parts of the plant, such as the roots, leaves and flowers, may combat the virus. A number of preclinical and clinical trials into the effects of echinacea products are currently underway. Tai Chi may help maintain bone mineral density for women undergoing menopause, preventing them from developing diseases such as osteoporosis. In addition, it improves balance and musculoskeletal strength. The National Institute for Complementary Medicine at the University of Western Sydney will coordinate national research on complementary medicines in clinical trials and studies. It will also support the training of researchers in the field so that the industry can expand and report its findings to the public. After reading the science, I decided to hit the streets of Sydney again and ask people about their own medical practices and openness to the idea of complementary medicines. If you're feeling a bit under the weather or a bit ill, what's the first sort of remedy that you think about to um, to make yourself better? Five, 500 milligrams of aspirin and one gram of vitamin C. I think if I had a cold or some sort of infection, I would generally think about natural ways of getting rid of it. For instance, drinking more water, keeping fluid intake up high and probably just eating better and a bit of light exercise. Whereas if I had something like a headache, I'd probably go straight for the Nurofen or the aspirin. Well, I'll make sure that I'm warmly dressed and I have a sleep. And if if I'm not feeling better after that, I'll, I'll take some vitamin tablets. If I have a stomachache, usually the first thing I'll have is some peppermint tea. If I have a headache, I try to make sure that I have quite a bit of of water because usually headaches are caused by dehydration maybe give myself a bit of a neck massage only if they still if they get worse beyond then then I will start to consider maybe taking I'm a big fan of Nurofen so maybe some Nurofen or ibuprofen as it actually is I think of water and ginger and garlic and tea and rest if it's possible to get it and if I'm not beating it after maybe a week then I'll probably consider seeing a GP then. I was pretty sick earlier this week and I'm feeling much much better now. So Is that after seeing the GP? I didn't go to the GP because I just knew that they would want to put me on antibiotics and 
if I can avoid it, I'd rather not go on them. Would you say that you're the type of person that's open to alternative or complementary medicines, or would you tend to go more for traditional medicines? Occasionally I'll have some herbal tea, but I'm not really interested in investing a lot of money in herbal supplements when I don't think they're really proven. If they were proven, they'd be available as drugs, not as herbal supplements from Blackmores or whatever. I believe acupuncture works, so if I needed it, I'd, and, and, and I know doctors even prescribe acupuncture, so if, if my doctor prescribed acupuncture, yes, of course I'd have it. I have tried uh, naturopathy, yes, which is the same homeopathy, um, and I, I do a lot of yoga. I've been doing yoga for 25 years and on and off. What, what do you find yoga helps you with in particular? Um, well, it, it helps me also to relax and, and uh, um, the bracing techniques are very important for your organs. There was a while there where I was getting very um, strong tension headaches and I'd been to the doctor and not, they basically, they couldn't give me any answers. They were going to send me off to have a CAT, sta- sca- uh, excuse me, a CAT scan and I said no. Uh, at that point I started seeing a naturopath. Now the naturopath put me on quite a strict diet and a whole range of supplements that I was to take several times a day. One's for my lungs, one's for my digestive system, for my nervous system. Uh, What else did I take them for? Um, Yeah, specifically to target like muscular cramps in my head and um, for my immune system as well. So I have been on a whole range of them. And yes, they did work. After a while, I stopped having the tension headaches. I'd be open to them, definitely. Probably, I don't have much faith in GPs, so yeah. Until next time, stay healthy. That's what you say. It seems complementary medicines are an integral part of staying healthy for people in Sydney. What do you think? That's all we've got time for in today's show. Contributing to the show was Patrick Ruby. They play Good Charlotte on the radio. Diffusion is broadcast from the 2SCR studios at the University of Technology, Sydney. You can listen to us on 2SCR 107.3 FM in Sydney and also across the community radio network. You can download our broadcast directly into your pod at www.diffusionradio.com. And you can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Listen next week for more science with Diffusion Science Radio.